0: Exactly what I was hoping for. We're still doing all right? We're still here? Amazing. So here we are, at the beginning of yet another season of Lent. And Lent, as we said earlier and we talked about last week, it's a season of spiritual renovations. This season of slowing down and looking at our interiors, seeing what's going on, what's there, where we're at, looking at our brokenness, our faults, our edges, and knowing that being human is about becoming whole and growing, and knowing that God is there to do just that. We do the hard work of stepping out towards what our tradition would call dying to self and resurrection, of moving towards wholeness and new kinds of life. And I think Lent is really one of the most beautiful things our tradition has to offer, especially uh, to us, but even to those who don't count themselves as religious. A period of introspection and intentional growth is a beautiful and wonderful thing to practice. But if you look at the the scope of our faith and spirituality, um, it's not just about our interiors, is it? It's not just about us, is it? Yes, it's bigger than that. When you look at the totality of the faith and spirituality of Jesus, it's also about our exteriors, it's about the world around us. And so while Lent is a season of looking inward, it should also be a season of of looking outward, a season of seeing what's going on in and around our world, looking at what's off, what shouldn't be, what's broken, what's corrupt and doing the hard work of renovating the world around us, moving it closer and closer and closer to the kind of world that God wants us to be, wants us to have, a world where everyone has a place and everyone has enough. Are you with me? Make sense? Maybe? Good? Yes? No? Yeah, we're nodding our heads? Good. And if you're not on the same page, that's okay too, because this is where we're camping out for lens. We're going to spend an entire month talking about exactly that, about renovating our exteriors and stepping out into the world around us, and talking about the one thing in our tradition that is meant to be the why behind it. And we're going to be talking for the entire month about this thing called justice. We're going to explore why justice is something that we as a church should and must talk about So throughout the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring some justice issues that we are rumbling with in our society. We're going to be talking about consent and what do we do with our sexual relationships. We're going to be talking about how do we treat our indigenous neighbors. We're going to be talking about immigration and refugees. And we're going to be talking about our criminal system. And with each one, we'll ask, why should we as a church care about this? Why is this a faith issue? And I'm super excited for this because we have some amazing speakers coming in to help us do exactly that. We have Bill Phipps, as we mentioned, coming in to talk to us about our indigenous neighbors and some other people coming in to help us understand why the church, we should care about justice. But for today, to help those of us who aren't really sure why we're talking about this, to help us set up camp in Lent, uh, we're going to talk about a few things. And this morning we talk about... We're going to talk about that flood story, we're going to talk about Amos' freakout, we're going to talk about Jesus' heart, and we'll talk about what the monk said. And we'll see where we end up. But before we get into that, because full disclosure, I got off off a plane like eight hours ago, and so I'm not fully present right now. I'm still like half in Toronto, half here. Um, Those they call red eyes, is that what they're called? Yeah, they're not fun, are they? No. Uh, So let's pray, because I know I need it. uh, And I know that you need it, because I'm speaking at you, and you need some patience with me. Uh, So let's bow our heads, and we'll say a prayer. So, gracious God, uh, this is a time when we ask for you to speak. It's a time when you take these words that I've written, and you speak through them, around them, under them, and you give us each, but also us collectively, something... Inspiring and challenging to chew on. And so, as we enter into the sermon time, uh, be with me, please. Be with us. And we ask that you do your thing. And we say this in your son's name Amen. All right. So, let's launch into this by talking about a story that's in the Bible. And it's probably one of the few Bible stories that most everyone here, and probably everyone we know, has at least heard of, and that's the story of the flood. And the gist of the flood story is basically this, that in the years since God created humanity and sent them off into the world to create this world that hums with reverence and flows with justice, things aren't going that well. Adam and Eve betrayed God. Cain killed his brother. Humanity tried to build a tower to render God obsolete. War broke out amongst pretty much everybody. And people got so consumed with getting revenge, hurting others, hoarding food, and gaining power. Things went so sideways that our Bible writers tell us that humanity actually forgot why they were put on this earth that their hearts, that place of our motivation and ultimate concern, once bent towards harmony and justice and love, had actually become twisted in the opposite direction. And so God, the story goes, looking down at all that sin, brokenness, violence, and division in the world, lamented that this isn't how it was supposed to be, and so God sent a flood to wash all the evil away, literally killing everyone, And basically pulling this cosmic mulligan. And so, of course, we tell this story to our kids. Because who doesn't want to instill the value of, if it doesn't work, just kill it? We'll never understand why this became a kid's story. But here's the thing about this myth. And let's own that, shall we? Let's name that this is a myth. And that's not to belittle it, that's actually to really honor it. It's one of those stories that's true without being true. A story that's meant to convey this universal truth and explain why things are the way they are. In almost every single culture around the world, a myth story exists. And scholars think there are several reasons for this. They think that people around the world were finding shell fossils high up in the hills and the mountains, so they assume that a flood must have happened. They made up a story to explain why shells were being found up high in the hills. Scholars think that, you know, nomadic and primitive people, for them, floods would have been one of the most disastrous things that could possibly have happened. And so, of course, a disastrous flood would linger in their cultural imagination and memory, and people began to, began to tell stories of this flood that happened a long, long time ago. And then, and then you have my favorite explanation for flood stories and why they exist in every single culture. Small bladders. One, one psychologist has posited that flood myths exist because of that, that dream that we all have after drinking too much water. And she thinks that the universality of flood myths exists because we've all had that dream of going to bed after drinking too much water. I think that is so awesome, it just has to be true. <laughs> but what we do know is that as time went on and cultures began to interact and merge these flood myths began to merge. And one culture would borrow from another, taking their myth and adapting it slightly, splitting off from it and using it to speak to their own specific beliefs, values, history, and truths, making a new faith claim about how they understood the world. And scholars generally agree that our myth uh, is a riff off of a much older myth, This myth where the gods were looking down upon the earth and they didn't like what they saw. Or rather, and here's the split, the gods didn't like what they heard. The problem in the original myth is that the humans were making too much noise, the gods couldn't sleep. And the gods needing their rest and not really caring, they sent a flood to wash all the humans away so they could get a good night's sleep. And of course their myth would say that. Their religion would have taught that the gods are powerful, angry, and ultimately concerned with only themselves. And so of course they could do that. That was a no-brainer. But our tradition took that story and it made one very, very, very important change. Instead of saying the gods didn't like what they heard, they said the gods didn't like what they saw. And what did God see? God looked down upon the world, and God saw injustice everywhere. And because of that, God started all over again. In changing the flood story, they were making one very important theological point. That is not our God. Our God is not like that. And in doing so, they made a revolutionary step forward in how we understand God and what God is like. God isn't a God who is only concerned with God's self. God's ultimate concern isn't just God. But rather, the thing that God's heart is ultimately bent towards is justice in our world. The thing the flood store is meant to proclaim is that God is a God of justice. Are you with me? And I bring that story up because I think that can help us understand the freak out that Amos had that Corolla just read. Because it's kind of a harsh passage, isn't it? I I wanted her to read that story with some tone because it really helps capture just what Amos is laying down. Like, Are you feeling that? Are you feeling a bit uncomfortable after it? Good, you should be. We should all feel a bit kind of rattled after hearing what Amos said. Now the text is from the book of Amos, which is from the Hebrew Scriptures. And Amos was a, a prophet. Yeah, you got it. And the job of a prophet was to be the spokesperson for God. It was kind of this mixture between spiritual coach and God's PR person. Their job was to critique the world around them, offer an alternative way of living and being, and invite people into repenting and changing how they lived. And we see exactly that happening in Amos chapter 5. We see these people who are seeking after this life that's meant to be full and meaningful. So they're taking time to go to church. They build these beautiful sanctuaries, they sing these wonderful hymns, they're reading scriptures, they're saying prayers. All of them thinking, this, this is the way to life. I know what we're doing. This is what God wants from me. Which we get, don't we? It should sound very familiar to what we do. We all in some way want to seek after that life. We want to connect with God. So we come here, we sing our songs, say our prayers, and we participate in worship. What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, to answer that question, enter Amos. So Amos enters into this church the people are at, and the people know who he is. They know he's a prophet. So, of course, they invite him to say a few words at the end of worship, thinking he'll give a nice, warm, fuzzy benediction. What does Amos do? He tears a strip off of them, doesn't he? He looks at them and he says, look at you. You call this worship? You think this will lead you into life with God? God? You sing your songs, you say your prayers, you declare everyone's welcome, wanted, and accepted. Yet throughout the week, you ignore the needs of your neighbor. You vote in and support policies which hurt the vulnerable and violate the earth. You strive to have instead of striving to give. It makes all that you do here simply noise to God. That's not seeking after God. That's not what she wants. You're missing the point. You're going in the wrong direction. Unless justice flows out of you, unless justice becomes your best friend, unless you live like rivers of justice flowing into the world, you will never find the life that you're looking for. That life will always be out of reach. What would you do if Amos was here and said exactly that to us? It's harsh, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. So before we do with that, what we usually do with stuff that makes us uncomfortable and just kind of sweep it under the rug, uh, let's sit with it. Because this is one of those things that make us uncomfortable that should make us uncomfortable. And it's in that discomfort that we can find something that's actually good, creative, and generative. So what is going on with Amos's freak out? I wonder if what's going on is a common but really fundamental misunderstanding of what worship is actually about. Because worship, we often think, or perhaps more fairly we inhabit, because I don't know how consciously we think about this kind of stuff, but we we inhabit the idea that worship is simply praising God, right? Right? It's giving God our devotion and our gratitude. It's this time when we come together, sing our prayers, say our songs, declare our beliefs, and in an hour and 15 minutes, but God forbid, no more, we have our worship, right? That, that's worship to us. That's the culture that we live in. Worship, in most cases, is, is synonymous with our Sunday service. But what Amos is getting at here is actually worship, it's much bigger, it's much deeper, it's much broader than that, The point of worship he's reminding us isn't simply singing songs and saying prayers. The point of worship is transformation. Worship through the songs, the prayers, and everything else that we do is rooting ourselves in what we know to be true and reverent and holy. It's the process of having our hearts, the very place of our essence, our motivations, our actions, our being, being transformed to be more like God's. Worship is fundamentally about aligning our hearts with God's heart, about becoming more and more the kind of people who embody all that God is, her diversity, her mystery, her grace, her love, and the source of Amos' freakout, her justice. The problem in this text is that these people's hearts, despite doing all the things that they're doing, weren't aligned in the same direction as God's. They were still aligned this way when God wanted them to be aligned this way. Their ultimate concern was not the same as God's. While God was concerned with justice, they were concerned with only themselves. And that's why Amos freaks out. So what do we do with this? Why do we talk about this as a Christian church? Shouldn't we be reading a story about Jesus instead of this? Good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and the answer to why we talk about this is this. If justice is the heart of God, justice is also the heart of Christ. At the heart of our faith and spirituality, the heart of Jesus is the call to remember that the ultimate concern of God is justice. And we see this in the idea that Jesus calls the kingdom. This life and world where the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, the forgotten, the abused are brought back into community. Where structures and systems that kept them down and out are torn down and rebuilt in new ways. And where the needs and concerns of the lowest are given the highest priority this text matters to us because that world is supposed to matter to us. And not just in a let's offer our thoughts and prayers kind of way, but in a this is the world that we are called to build kind of way. That world, a world of justice, is a natural outcome of the worship that we do. It's where all of this goes. It's the kind of world that happens when we live like our hearts are bent towards justice. Anyone know of a guy named Thomas Merton? Some of you do? Yeah, he's, a, he's one of my rabbis, he's one of my spiritual teachers. And Thomas Merton called the kind of living that is bent towards justice, he called it living like water. He got the line from Amos where God says, what I want from you is a mighty mighty flowing river of justice and righteousness. So may you live like water, is what he would always say. And he uses it to talk about how we are supposed to let justice orient our lives. How we are supposed to go into the world and like water, cleanse and nourish, reshape and enliven, and literally shape the world around us, moving it closer and closer to the kind of world that God wants us to have. And so this Lent, we talk about justice, we talk about living like water, because that's where we're supposed to go. That's the kind of people that we are called to be. So we're going to talk about rape culture and consent. We're going to talk about our relationship with our neighbors. We're going to talk about about immigration and refugees. We're going to talk about our criminal system because these are the things that we fundamentally have to care about because we are the church. And so we'll bring some people in, they'll talk with us, and together we'll rumble about how we as a church can make a difference in this world. But living like water, it's tough work. There's a lot of sweat, a lot of time, a lot of energy goes into living like water. And so as we enter into a season that's not just about looking inward, but also looking outward, we're going to end our service here at this table, receiving the food that we need to step out and be the church and be people of justice, be people who live like water and reshape and nourish the world around us. So as we get ready to come to this table, as we get ready to step out together, Uh, We're going to sing a song, and we'll use this time to say, yes, that's the kind of people I want to be. That's the direction I want to go. I want my heart bent towards justice and creating a world where everyone has enough and everyone has a place. And to be in that kind of church and to creating that kind of world, together we say, amen.